welcome to this week's Key Voices, Conversations with Folk in and Around Education. I'm Caroline Doherty. Pleased to be back after a slight COVID-19 related pause and just an opportunity for me to say another huge thank you to all the school staff who are listening. The work you do has never been more important to the communities you serve. Given when we're recording, we're, we're doing this on the 7th of April, uh, some of today's episode is going to focus on, on those COVID-19 related issues and the rest of the discussion will be a bit more wide ranging. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce today's guest, Professor Barry Carpenter. Hello, Barry. Um, a thank you for joining us remotely. <laughs> um, this, this week's guest has had an incredibly long and impressive career, probably enough for a whole series of, of podcasts, actually. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, over 40 years in education with a specific focus on SEND. And uh, Barry's been a head teacher of three schools in, in the UK, national director, um, at the UK Government Department of Education and the first professor of mental health in education in the UK. And in fact, you were, Barry was recently uh, working on the, the guidance that helps schools understand how to assess pupils performing below standard, the standard of national curriculum assessments. And indeed, you, you published many books, uh, including um, one on autism and girls quite recently, and you've been awarded the OBE and CBE for services for children with special needs. So just before we, we kick into the conversation, as always, remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion. The views that we're about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, do check out thekeysupport.com. Right, so uh, Barry, uh, we're speaking at a time of massive upheaval for the education sector, bringing with it huge disruption to, to learning and daily routine for, for pupils and staff alike. And we're, we're really only at the sort of tip of the iceberg um, with regard to the implications for, for mental health for young people of, of this period of, of school closure. What do you think the big issues are for schools and, and parents now and in the, the coming weeks? This whole crisis is bringing a, a redefinition to the term shifting sands. In fact, are there any sands to shift? Um, we seem to be preparing in great haste, struggling to establish a routine. What's being told one day is different the next. And I think you're right when you say about tip of the iceberg. Um, I, I, let's start with the children, um, because I think, uh, and I'll come back to them uh, later as we talk, but I think one point I want to make from conversations I've had over the last few days with one or two colleagues is these are a very different generation of children to certainly the childhood I would have and maybe Caroline, the childhood that you would have had in it, they are far more... Uh, linked to their mobile phone devices. And they are used to, aren't they, on a daily basis, taking information about the world from that device mm. and feeding their own personal expressions through that device. So, in fact, are the current requirements around isolation really so dramatically different mm. for some people to how they may exist anyway on a daily basis? Having said that, 
the, 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 the factor that has reduced for all of us is, is social interaction. Um, and we know that the brain grows in the context of meaningful human interaction. So even though teenagers may seem to be reluctant to have uh, meaningful conversations with mom and dad at home and, and go around just grunting mm. short responses, um, that human interaction is still important to them then. So I, I think it will be a very interesting presentation. I'm sure there's going to be lots of research studies done on this time and what the impact was for, for the children. So I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But I think... Um, if we extend the bit about devices and laptops and computers and so on, let's think about the families and the home situation. We're all applauding the fact, and I certainly would want to applaud the fact, that teachers are preparing vast quantities of materials for children to be homeschooled, to work online. But in a family that has three children, how does that work? Because not each child may have a laptop. Mom wants her laptop. Um, Dad is doing his work from home too and needs his laptop. So how do three children function online mm. in parallel? So there are some challenges there. Um, we're also extending the dynamics, are we not, of what it means to be a parent by asking the parent to actually take a very full teacher role. I mean, yeah. to teach one's child is a dynamic of being a parent. Mm. But it is something far more formal that some parents will rise to the challenge easily and others will find this is a very um, difficult thing for them to maintain that intense interaction one-to-one -one with their child and yet anxious about achieving targets. And I think for school leaders, those um, shifting sands, those um, routines, if we just take the, the exam situation, the fact that GCSEs and A-levels our examinations are suspended. Uh, it's all going to be teacher assessment, and then the regulations come out on Monday. Um, and I was talking to my, my son, Matthew, who is um, principal at Baxter College in, in Kidderminster, uh, an 11 to 18 school, and mm -hmm. he was saying that um, in, in considering the new exam regulations, obviously it starts with teacher assessment, but then it has to go from the teacher to the head of department and from the head of department it then has to be discussed with the data manager for the school because does it match the future the um, past trends mm. in the school uh, examination results because that's one of the factors then it has to come to the senior leadership team before ever it's released out and as he was describing that i said well really what what you're trying to do in that process which is a very logical and obvious one but it's about all the time increasing the reliability and the validity of the evidence because mm. these results in a strange way will come under intense scrutiny because children have not gone through mm. the hoop that they were expected to jump through and therefore will society pass judgments and already um you know pupils themselves are expressing that concern but then i think conversely don't we annually have the naysayers about this year's set of A-level results are not what they were in the past mm. and standards are dropping. I mean, that's a fairly annual ritual. So you can probably hear in the way I'm debating with myself, mm. it's, um, there's nothing obvious or logical, is there? One makes mm. the best response that you can. And all I want to say is, is I am just stunned by the way, and you touched on this in your opening words, 
the way that school leaders are leading in ways that nobody, nobody could have ever planned for this. Any risk management assessment would have had something about infection control, but this knocks that into a cocked hat, doesn't mm, it? Mm. And the way the teachers are either volunteering to teach those children who happen to still be attending school, planning new activities for them, or are there at home, teachers are at home planning materials to work on online, supporting children in that way. Nobody has shirked the responsibilities. Mm. And I think that human spirit has to be applauded in the teaching profession. Teaching, Caroline, is a relationship-based profession. And more than ever, we are seeing this. Mm. I, uh, you mentioned my career has been a long one. Indeed, it has. And um, this would have been my, this is my 40th year out of my many years that I would have been a school leader. I became a head teacher when I was just 25. Wow. And um, so I've been 40 years a school leader in various incarnations. And um, it's it just the one thing I think I hang on to that teaching is a relationship based profession. Um, and, and I just, again, want to commend everyone for the amazing efforts they're putting into all of this. And as you say, that, that changing situation and a lack of kind of clarity and guidance from government on lots of these issues just means that the, the pressure is really on those in leadership to make a judgment, make a yes. judgment based on what is right for them, for their school and their, their situation, because they can't wait for somebody else to tell them what what to do. That's um, right. That's right. That's so right. Very very challenging time to be to be in that role. Um, and you know, have you have you had a, a thought? Have you done that thought exercise about about what you might do if if you, if you were a, a head teacher at this time and how you you would look after yourself and and those around you? Um, I have. Um, and I resonated some of that with with my son, and he backed to me. And um, it was very interesting and crystallised a lot of thinking because you're right, we're making the best judgments. School leaders are making the best judgments that they can. Um, and yet there's this desire to operate strategically. But what is strategy in this current um, dynamic situation? Mm. Um, and I think... In, you've got to almost think beyond strategy and say, what are the aims and values of your schools? And I think those, the ethos of your school, is the best informant of your judgment at this point in time. It's not about, oh, this should be the, the, the policy. This hopefully will be a transit, transitory phase, and we will learn from it, but this isn't how it is always going to be. But your ethos in your school will be always there mm. and I think if anything I would say to school leaders at this point in time it is about compassionate leadership don't be frightened to be kind in fact we're seeing multiple acts of kindness aren't we mm. and, and, and use compassion as a key construct in your leadership um, one of the doctorate students that I'm working with the professorship you mentioned is based at Oxford Brooks University and one of the doctorates I'm supervising at the moment is about compassion in leadership in schools and we need to recognize that teaching has a lot of emotional work to it well you can escalate those two words up enormously now can't you mm -hmm. it is huge emotional work you cannot deliver teaching today unless you pull on your humanity yeah. and your technical skills and everything else 
but your humanity needs to be first and foremost. And we need to build those relationships in, in new and diverse ways. Those relationships we thought we already had established are now having to be done by a Skype call, as you and I mm, are indeed. each other first time via Skype. And I think a sensible school leader, knowing that these are new judgments to be made, will try and co-construct any strategy and ensure that there's a dialogue with key key players. Um, that examination uh, process that I mentioned, it's going to rely on teacher assessment. Look how many people now need to be um, more intensively involved in that dialogue than they normally would be, because it normally would be handed over to an exam process, and then the exam board would pick up and tell you what the outcomes are. Yeah. Um, it's a new conversation to be had there. So I, I think compassion has to inform judgments based on what is the ethos of your school. And, and as you say, um, humanity at the fore of, of everything. You know, there's, people can't work or learn or do any of the things you might wish them to do in that more traditional structure um, without um, a, first, a first thought to, you know, um, more basic uh, psychological, medical, emotional needs. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, yeah, it does, you know, it's, it's something I imagine you, t- you talk about quite a lot in, in your work, but often people see as a secondary to the academic. Yes. And actually now we're, we are switching. Um, and we touched on it briefly at the beginning there, the, the, the role of, of, of parents juggling their own work and, and homeschool. And obviously some teachers um, are, are, are in that, that, that situation as well. As a, as a former head teacher and, and parent, um, have you any thoughts about the best way, best way to manage it? Yes, I, I think I've got two sides to this um, question because I've, this, this question has caused me to reflect really very deeply uh, and do a lot of thinking and, and trawling what information's out there and bear in mind, some of that information is not one month old yet, and yet it's trying to inform our judgments mm. in not in pontificating ways, but in ways that literally are going to affect people's lives. So let's start with the children, and then I want to bring that to what I might say to, to parents, as mm. a parent myself. Um, mental health-wise, what do I think is the key thing that's happening to children at the moment? And I've drilled that down to loss. Mm. It's loss. There is loss of routine. There is loss of structure. I mean, I know children moan about having to go to school, but actually they just thrive on that structure. And imagine, because you rightly pointed out in, in the introduction that a lot of my, most of my career has been spent in the field of special education needs, and particularly with children with autistic spectrum. Mm. And for them, the loss of structure is huge. The end of the world um, is coming for them. Um, because it's so dramatically different. There's a loss of friendship, those daily interactions that are vital to children. Mm. There's loss of opportunity. Think about the the examination Mm. system. Um, One student I had a phone call with the other day, when I asked how she was feeling about the um, examination situation, she said, I felt I was preparing to run a marathon. Good analogy. Mm. She said, now they tell me there's no race. Mm dramatically different and suddenly that student who is going to have to take responsibility for putting themselves through that examination it's down to them at the point that that exam paper sits in front of them that's gone 
It's mm. in somebody else's hands. It's kind of already done. Mm. And, and children, while we must all think, oh, this generation's going to be very happy they didn't have to sit the exam, I'm not sure they are. I think there is a loss of freedom because mm. it was down to them to plan their futures. So that, that freedom is, is now gone. Um, and I think all of that loss I've just articulated, what does that build up to? It builds up to trauma mm. and it builds up to anxiety. We have children already starting to go through panic attacks. Will we be seeing more self-harm? Young minds have finished mm. ACER and they're already saying that the, the, uh, there is evidence about increases in self-harming um, because children have a loss of support, a loss of their coping mechanisms, even a loss of sleep in some instances because they are, they are so worried. Um, so that, that's what I think is happening for the children. We as teachers, although we're making all of these responses at the moment, must bear in mind, fundamentally, we're about learning. Mm. And therefore, those parents that now find themselves as teachers delivering homeschooling, what could they do in terms of learning against all of that loss and trauma I've just articulated? Mm. Some part of their working day with their child needs to be around emotional resilience, of building the emotional well-being of the child, making sure that there is an opportunity to explore feelings. I was looking for um, some resources today that I could um, leave on a doorstep and run for my grandchildren. Mm. Or, uh, three of them are in primary school. Uh, and I found I got some emotional well-being journals produced by Butterfly Print. And they are just superb at helping children to journal their responses. Now, for a six- or eight-year-old or even ten-year-old, to do that freestyle is a bit mm. difficult. These journals start with exploring different emotions or set up contexts and ask you what your response would be to that. And I think that would trigger things mm. for all sorts of children. The, the other thing for children with particular special educational needs and, and autism, Caroline, that I'd recommend, is there is a, a charity called Books Beyond Words, which produce wordless books. And I've recently become vice chair of that mm -hmm. charity. And these wordless books deal with very complex emotions. And I currently have a research project that's trialing the use of them in schools. But one of the things the organizations produce very quickly is a free booklet mm -hmm. that you download that is uh, explained what the virus is and why we have to wash our hands and how we have to keep our distance from people in picture form so there's not that complex decoding of, mm. of print phonetically or graphically because some children, even those that are um, even in, in the normal intelligence range, may struggle with print sometimes because they're so anxious, their anxiety and all of that, um, that uh, um, internal uh, anxiety that they're feeling, the stress, um, will actually block their capacity maybe to read. Mm. So these books, which can be found on the Books Beyond Words website, are free and other books that deal with complex emotions that may be relevant to the current situation have also been put there free for the time being. Right. I'd encourage any parent, mm. um, I, I feel for those parents who've got children with very challenging complex needs at home, because the, the, those children need a lot of additional support. Why mm. are they in smaller classrooms with higher staffing ratios? And you are a mom, or, or maybe there's mom and dad working just with that child day in, day out. Mm. Very intense situation.
Um, but I would just say again, emotional resilience has to be a key component to any teaching that's happening at the moment. Great. That, thank you for that. And 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 just moving on to um, uh, to some wider issues now. You've you've obviously seen a, a great deal of of change in the education sector over a, a long and varied career. Um, interested in your reflections on on what you think has kind of changed for the better and improved in that time, and 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 what you think we still need to work on. I reflected on this and um, and thought of it actually in the journey of, of my second child, Katie, who has Down syndrome, um, and thinking that she is 35 now and lives in her own home. That would not, when she was born, that would not have been mm. society's expectation. And in fact, I was already a head teacher in special education at that time. and. I ran a community school, but was asked to take over the children that were being brought out of what were called hospital schools in those right. days, okay. where children with learning disabilities, in some instances, were put into hospital-type situations. And I remember going to visit um, two or three Down syndrome young men who were coming into the school I was head teacher of. And I went early in the morning to get used to all their routines, so I got to know them really well. And the charge nurse said to me, you'll have to wait till they've had their shower. I said, fine, I'll, I'll, do you want me to come and assist in any way or whatever? And I was horrified because the shower routine involved standing them against the wall and turning on a hose pipe. Oh, good grief. And I think, you know, my daughter, um, to say, is 35. So if, if I think that Katie had opportunities to communicate when her speech didn't develop. Sign language, Makatum, mm. was available very early on, and she became a fluent signer by the age of four and became very interested in words. And people would say, well, the child can't read because mm. you have to have speech before you read. We made books, and so did her wonderful nursery teacher, who is, is now a head teacher herself in Solihull. Um, they made uh, books personalised to Katie, and she would sign sentences like, uh, mommy car, um, daddy house. Mm. Um, we made short sentences like like that. So she learned to read, and then through that reading, the speech mm. came. Um, where did she go to school? She went to um, a specialist nursery to start her off, to get her on the right track with the right interventions, like signing, mm. like um, symbols and other augmented means of communication. And then she was equipped to have some experiences in mainstream schools. Mm. And then when she got to secondary and the pathways diverged, ch children are going the examination route, Katie would not have managed those examinations, but nor do we want our child sitting in the back of a history class doing a GCS, doing a jigsaw mm. puzzle while the rest were studying for their GCSE. Yeah. So um, she at that point went to a special school with a wonderful vocational pro program, amazing work experience, um, to the extent that she knew by the time she reached 19, mm. she wanted to go into hospitality and housekeeping. Uh, she wanted to go to university, but the UCAS system couldn't quite accommodate Katie Carpenter, so she went to a specialist college, qualified uh, in hospitality and housekeeping. Um, from there, went on and had her own home. Has mm. uh, latterly been involved in the apprenticeship scheme, um, qualified as a teaching assistant, 
And then unbeknown to anybody, a year ago, decided she didn't want it anymore. She wanted to be an actress, don't they all? And she threw it all up, enrolled herself in a drama diploma at the local college. Um, it was her and a load of 18-year-olds. I couldn't possibly comment what my heart was doing at that time, but it was pretty uh, scary, but they were wonderful with her. She passed the drama diploma, and Caroline, when she came home last August and showed us the diploma, it said in brackets at the bottom, this diploma is equivalent to four GCSE passes. Mm. And I was speechless. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen often, but I was speechless. Who would have thought a young woman with Down syndrome would ever have anything that's equivalent mm. to four GCSE passes? I've said all of that because that, for me, encapsulates the journey my career has been on, mm. the journey I've been on as a parent of a child with special needs, but reflects at each of those junctures the changes in society. Attitudinally, society has changed. What this country does not value in its special needs system is the universality of that system. Every child is entitled to a school-based education. I know some children cop out of the system, for some children with special needs, that system does not work. But that is the fundamental starting mm. point. That is the legal entitlement. And there are still developed countries in the world for whom that opportunity is not available. Um, and to take on that final part of your question, what do we need to do in the future? I think we need to recognise that in this 21st century, the children have changed. I've talked mm. about Katie's as a young woman now with Down syndrome. That was very common at the beginning of my teaching career to be working with children with Down syndrome. Not now. Mm. Far more children with autism, but also far more children with complex needs. Um, when, uh, again, you mentioned in, my, in the introduction that I had been national director for the DFE on the complex needs project. And my job was to identify who are these children with complex needs in this 21st century in our schools. And do you know the largest group of children now giving rise to special education needs in our system are children born prematurely. Mm. 80,000 children a year born prematurely. In, in every primary classroom, there will be between two and four children in every primary class who has been born prematurely, prematurely being anything before 37 weeks. And they learn in very different ways to what we've traditionally known. So I think it's that recognition of this changing population and ensuring that the system is responsive to these children rather than keep trying to drag square mm. pegs and pound them into round holes. Brilliant. Um, and uh, as you say, you you you've you've been heavily involved in 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 the work on the in engagement model for formative and, and summative assessment for for children who are not engaged in subject specific learning. Can you can you tell us a bit a bit more about that work and the the difference that you think it will make? Okay, so the engagement model, um, just to clarify, has actually come out of the Rochford mm, review. Yes. But the Rochford Review actually took the work that I'd done with uh, my team and with schools up and down this country and internationally as part of that DFE project, um, which was published in uh, 2012, um, which actually recognised a new population, this new generation of children with special needs in our schools. Um, and once we'd identified those children in the project, we then said, well, if these children are 
wired differently, which was the, the emerging theme. These children were presenting quite differently, wired differently. They're wired differently. In what way do they learn differently? Mm. And when we know how they learn differently, in what way do we teach differently? And that led me to think about and discover more from, from a literary review about engagement. Engagement is a universal principle. Every child needs to be engaged from mm. the A-level student through to the child in early years. And every type of child special needs. If the child isn't engaged, they're not going to be a successful and effective learner. So it's a universal principle. And so we built a a model of engagement, profile and engagement scale, which is a formative assessment model and a pedagogical model. Um, And then the Rotary Review, when it met, and I was not part of that review, discovered that work, looked at it, and they saw its potential to become formative, uh, statutory summative assessment, Mm -hmm. sorry, statutory summative assessment to replace what had been the P-levels, which had been very influential in the day, very groundbreaking, but they were published in 1998 and were a response to 20th century special Mm. needs, not 21st century special educational needs. And so the engagement model has been built on all of that research, all of those key tenets established with our schools, with teachers up and down our country, and has taken it now to once this current crisis is over, and once you can get a gap in the Brexit legislation, we'll actually be going through Parliament to become statutory summative uh, assessment. Uh, and you mentioned those children not engaged in subject-specific learning. Um, that's what the new document says, and it equates in old money to those children that probably P-levels one to four. But I actually think it's got more potential. That child that has been excluded from school at that point of exclusion, is a disengaged learner. Mm. a child not engaged in subject-specific learning. How are we going to re-engage that child? What's our quest? What's our journey for and with that child to get them back to an authentic level of engagement, which gives them meaningful outcomes for their learning? And I think there's huge potential in, in what the Rochford Review offers in the engagement model and then thinking actually more widely about engagement as pedagogy mm. that leads to that summative assessment. The two should be interlinked. Right. Thank you for and and sorry, we, we lost you slightly there, but you're saying kind of after the Brexit process it's likely that this will pass into Yes, it, it, it is. The DFE had, had got it all lined up to go into the legislative cycle. Um, uh, and obviously they, they, there is a queue to get things in because mm. of the Brexit legislation. But now, with the, the coronavirus crisis, everything is on hold. Mm. Uh, but uh, my colleague Diane Rochford has spoken with the DfE and is assured that that uh, legislation will be happening when the time is right yeah. after the crisis. And, yeah, I, I guess it's the sort of, the you know, part of the assessment puzzle after all of the removal of levels, um, you know, work and kind of... Um, and that and that period, it, it does feel that this has been been sort of um, following follow following up, and and as you say, much more suited to a twenty first century aspiration um, yeah. for for those children. And um, if you think of that group we were talking about earlier, experiencing the loss and so on, what's the impact of trauma going to be? Because trauma can be a real block to learning, mm. can make the child an insecure learner. Um, and I think schools that are sensitive to their school population, who are going to be quite vulnerable, will perhaps want to think of something like a recovery curriculum, mm. where they actually put some children who are showing signs of trauma 
through a process of, of helping them work through those feelings. Is the curriculum on the day those children return going to be exactly the one that they left? And if it is, some children who were good learners before are going to be disengaged by that curriculum because it doesn't meet them at their point of learning need. Their point of learning need, whenever they return to school, is post a worldwide traumatic mm. event. And as, you, and as you say, in terms of, of engagement, even previously engaged and motivated students who maybe have, haven't had that exam experience now, may, may, may be the dif- different learners to the learners that they were, and, and children with anxiety or, you know, or children who haven't previously exhibited anxiety be anxious about, you know, is school going to close again? You know, to what extent yeah. do I invest in this activity? Um, yeah, a whole a whole range of, of responses. And as you say, it's it won't just be and here's the next page on the textbook. Away we go. Away we go. Um, indeed. Um, and and uh, finally, as as you as you move towards um, retirement, I'm I'm curious to know what what would you say your proudest achievement is over the the course of a very uh, illustrious career? And is there anything that you either wish you wish you hadn't done or wish you had done but didn't didn't get around to um it's a bit like just style of disc from which <laughs> this guy would take with me and i'm going to disappoint you because i couldn't get it down to one but i've got it down to three very brief ones um first of all to say though no i if i could plan a career i would have the one i've just lived through again mm. it's been the most marvelous experience totally unplanned at times um, but I've always tried to keep at the centre of what I do, children, even in jobs where I haven't been directly in a, in a school-based situation, to have that regular contact with children. Um, my research, for example, is always very classroom-based with children because they present us with the issues, and actually, if you find the solutions, then it's, it's a very powerful approach to have that school-based inquiry model um, but the, the three things I'd quickly say, there was a time in the 90s where a lot of my work, both as a head teacher and then I was back at Oxford um, Brooks for, for a time then as a principal lecturer, was around family-based practice mm. and working with families of children with special needs. And at that time, I actually, in 1998, actually published a book called Families in Context. And one of the things I'm proudest of is, is that all of my family were involved in that. Um, my wife and I wrote a chapter, my wife's an early years practitioner, was a deputy head teacher, we wrote a, a, a chapter together on the need for early intervention. My son wrote a, a short chapter on what it was like to be a sibling uh, of uh, a, a young person with special needs. Mm. Katie even wrote a chapter about herself, but using symbols on, on a symbol computer program to write that. And our youngest child at, the, at that time, Grace, I remember, was actually three and three quarters. The three quarters mattered very much to her. Mm. And she did the drawings that the publisher kindly used as the front cover. Wow. And so for all of us as a family, that is something very memorable. And it's a significant milestone, not only in my professional career, but in our family mm. life as well. Um, I suppose, keeping with books, I have to say this latest book that I've done, um, 
um, with uh, Professor Francesca Happe and Joe Edgerton, uh, is the outcome of the National Forum on Girls and Autism, which has been my privilege to chair uh, for the last five years. And that group has made huge inroads. And when I suggested that we might look to do a book, every member of that group, some 25 of them, agreed to write a, a chapter in the, in the book. Um, and the book was launched on the 2nd of April last year, so just, just 12 months. And within three days, it went to the top of Amazon Education and I had to go to reprint. Wow. Um, to date, I've traveled to 12 countries of the world to launch the book. If coronavirus hadn't hit, I would be heading for Turkey next week and would just have come back from the USA. Um, and it's just had a significant impact. And the number of girls and women with autism that have got in touch to say what a difference it's making to them, because people now have accurate information that female autism is a different presentation to male autism. Mm -hmm. And yet everything we know about autism is grounded and rooted in male autism. So for me, that's been quite a life-changing experience, actually, even at this point yeah. in my career. And something I'm proud of, that those people sitting around that table, some of whom had never written a chapter before in their lives, stepped up and did that for the cause. And uh, it's been a campaigning piece of work. Mm. My final choice would be that period of time I had as national director was one of the most stressful and hard-working periods of time I'd ever had. But actually, the work around children with complex needs to discover these children, the teachers have been saying, these children are not the ones that we used to have. I've never taught a child like this before. And they were right. And what I was able to give back to my profession was this is the evidence that you're not losing the plot. These children are different mm. to those that we have taught before because of their prematurity, because of their fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And I've done two books on that since. Um, because of the new patterns and new causal bases for autism, because there are more children with rare syndromes mm. um, surviving now that had not ever used to survive and reach the school years. Because of, and the most complex of all the complex needs, is actually mental health. Yeah. It's the one that will creep up and cohabit with any other form of learning difficulty and disability, which is partly why Oxford Brooks took the pioneering step to establish a chair in mental health and education. And I, part of my role has been to help and support the development of undergrad, masters and doctoral level studies around mental health and education, because we as teachers have not traditionally been train, trained in that. Mm -hmm. So that piece of work on complex needs actually influenced this last decade of my career hugely, um, has given me an, an international platform that when you're a teacher and a boy from the black country, you never thought would happen to you. Wow. I can see why you found it hard to uh, to, to whittle it down. Um, fantastic there to hear to hear about all that impact both in this country and and more widely um, across the the world there. Um, and anything anything final that you'd like to to add to our to our listeners out there today? I'm just going to end again with teaching is a relationship based profession, and to every teacher I would say. Teaching is a vocation. It's not an old-fashioned idea. You need to ask yourself, what is it in your humanity that called yourself, called you to be a teacher? And for those of my colleagues working, doing some magnificent work with children with special needs, I still believe we have the best special needs education system in the world, whatever anybody else may say. We do.
And to them, I would say, and you need to ask one further question, what is it in your humanity that called you to work with society's most vulnerable children? And don't walk away from that question. Find the answer, because without it, you'll be of no use to the children. And when you know that answer, celebrate the human being that you are and celebrate the wonderful teacher that you can be who has treasure in their hands. And that treasure, when invested wisely, can transform lives. Wow. Uh, gosh, uh, thank you. Thank you very much for that. And thank, thank you for the opportunity. Well, and, uh, and uh, thank you very much to those of you listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. And thank you, Barry, for sharing your, your experiences and your, your knowledge and your wisdom with us today. Uh, members of the Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And do remember to tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.